Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me and the show on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening. In this episode, I sit down with friend and now regular guest, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel and author Jeffrey Fisher, known by his call sign Fish. Jeff has an extremely diverse military career with over 30 years of operational experience. Uh, he's flown both the Air Force's EC-130H Compass Call and the Navy's EA-6B Prowler with considerable combat time. Additionally, he served two tours in Washington, D.C. headquarters, U.S. Air Force Pentagon. Towards the end of his career, Jeff was a senior diplomatic defense official at embassies in Austria and Kosovo. And his final assignment was a senior position at NATO Special Operations Headquarters in Belgium. Before I introduce Fish formally, though, you know, regular listeners will recognize his name. He's been a guest on the show a couple times now to discuss mainly his observations and thoughts on the current Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we had him on a last spring and I believe late, late summer, early fall of last year. Uh, and I'm sure we'll touch on that topic today. But the reason why I'm having him back on specifically is to discuss his first two books, Live Range and Balkan Reprisal. Uh, they are the first two military fiction books in a series about main character Dr. Kurt Nover, a retired Navy SEAL turned medical doctor who battles his own demons of PTSD and finds himself caught in the middle of global security altering events. You know, as the forward to the second book, Balkan Reprisal, states, you know, sometimes fiction cuts disturbingly close to fact. And fiction can help us explore complex issues from different perspectives with little consequence. So this can help us learn, adapt, and find creative solutions that might otherwise evade us. So we're going to take a look at some of the complex challenges to global security, but through the writing of Colonel Fisher and the eyes of his main character, Dr. Kurt Nover. With that, I welcome retired U.S. Air Force Colonel and author Jeffrey Fisher to From the Crow's Nest. Fish, it's great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining me. Ken, thanks so much. It's always good to be with you, man. I appreciate you taking time. You know, you, you've been on the show a couple other times. As I said at the opening, I felt it was right to give you an opportunity to come back on the show. I really wanted to talk about the books that you've written. You know, when you've been on before, we've talked a lot about current uh, events, uh, what situation in Ukraine, and we've mentioned your books. But, you know, since that time, I've had the chance to read them, loved them. I highly recommend them to our listeners. And I wanted to have you back on because I, I wanted to you address some real interesting topics and scenarios in both of these books that I think we can learn a lot from in terms of how we think about current affairs. You know, to begin, I wanted to ask you just, you have such deep experience operationally in the Air Force, in the Joint Forces, Special Forces. You leave the military and you decide you want to write fiction. So before we actually get into the books, can you talk a little bit about this journey? Because I think this journey actually explains a lot about what you're writing in terms of the characters and the plots and everything. 
to me, it's a really important question. And I appreciate you asking it, right? So in 2011, I had the idea for Live Range and I thought it was a really cool plot twist. And it was, it was kind of a weird, very nuanced kind of idea for a, for a fiction thriller. A lot of it was based on my time at OSCE and, and listening to the debates between ambassadors about organizations that were mercenary organizations like um, the Wagner Group and, and others, right? And what would go into creating a, a mercenary group? How, how would you organize, train, equip? specifically on training, right? You know, I, I dabbled with it. I didn't do a lot. And then uh, after 30 years in the military, I retired and uh, my wife and I were planning on traveling around the world. And literally two months after I retired, she came to me with a, uh, with a positive stick for pregnancy. And at 53 years old, I was going to be a father. I wasn't, wasn't ready for that, but he's awesome. I, I wouldn't trade him for the world. But I also realized that when he grows up to, to the point where he truly wants to understand who his father is, you know, it's 50-50, I'm going to be around. So I decided to actually start writing my books, not necessarily as a, as a biography or an autobiography, but there's hints and kind of it lays up a patchwork of who I am in there. I'm a little bit of Kurt Nover. I'm a little bit of Buck. I'm a little bit of Smitty. My wife's a little bit of Allison. And uh, in, as he reads and as he knew who I was when he was a teenager, hopefully he'll realize, yeah, that's that's my dad. And I, I kind of get it now. Right. So that, that was the context. So I, I put pen to paper and I, I feverishly finished live range. The book was intended to just be for him, which is great. And uh, all of a sudden my friends started reading it and they're like, this is amazing. This should be a movie. I want to play this guy. Uh, the book sales went, went nuts. And I, I'm grateful. Most of my friends threatened that they were bodily harm on me if I didn't uh, have Kurt and over continue. And so he ended up in uh, Balkan reprisal, which We'll talk about here in a little bit. And then uh, he's also in Afghan Ghosts and The Russian Puppeteer. So those are the, the four that are out and the fifth book's being written right now. So hopefully some of our listeners have had a chance to read. I, you know, I know we, we've been talking about it, the AOC here for a few months and just in personal conversations and we've been pushing the book and I've gotten some feedback from people like, oh yeah, I've read the book. It's a great book. But for the listeners who haven't, you know, just real quick, we won't give away, we won't talk plot. We won't give away any of the books. You have to read them. But essentially uh, the first book, you know, it, it's a new series that kind of focuses on the post-military career of this Dr. Kurt Nover. Navy SEAL, Special Forces, and, you know, after he leaves the military, he's looking to heal. He He's struggling with a lot of demons from his time in, in the military. And so he goes into medical school, becomes a doctor. And the book, Live Range, really begins with a new chapter in his life that's opening up where he's going to leave residency and go and work through uh, Doctors Without Borders over in Africa to kind of help a town that doesn't have adequate medical care, or so it seems. And that starts to unfold a series of events that ultimately have real global security implications that he gets caught up in unknowingly. And he navigates those complexities. And with that, you know, one of the things that comes out immediately from, you mentioned this a minute ago, that, you know, Kurt Nover has a little bit of you in it. Some of the characters have, a, have other people that you've associated with. And if your wife is listening to this, you know, the character of Allison is a very positive character in the life of Dr. Nover. So, you know, good job on checking that box. So could you talk a little bit about that character development? Sure. So remember, the foundation is that this is, was intended for my kid, right? So I, he's going to grow up with a father who has, who has PTSD and it, it's managed PTSD, right? And at some point, he's probably going to not, not understand it. And, and I get that. You know, I, I've read a lot of 
fiction thrillers, and and I like them, right? I like Jason Bourne. I, I like all these series, right? But all these characters never seem to have flaws. <laughs> they were perfect, <laughs> and I decided that no, you know that that's that's not realistic. Kurt Nover is just he's a protagonist that keeps putting his nose in the wrong place and somehow has to save the world over and over again. At the same time, he's struggling with his own demons and. He's trying to balance his life, his wife's, you know, his time with his new lover, his girlfriend. And it's it's tough, right? He doesn't win every day, right? PTSD sometimes wins and sometimes it doesn't. But you got to get up every day and keep fighting. And I think that that's an important point. You know, like you mentioned, some of these other military fictions. I mean, Dr. Nover is just basically an average person who has experience in the military, but he doesn't exhibit, you know, any sort of unique skill set that, you know, all these other movies and books kind of focus on. He's just a person who's trying to figure out what the next step is. Right. He's a mentally handicapped Jack Ryan, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's I mean, I, I hate to say it that way, but he's got some some challenges and demons in his head. You know, so that was the foundation for, for building Kurt, right? Of, of what Kurt was going to be. And then some of the guys that helped him were people who were close to me. You know, Smitty is a conglomeration of a group of friends. Buck is a conglomeration of, of a bunch of friends. Don't want to give away too much of the story, but these are all people that were in my life. You already quoted that, you know, or we'd mentioned before we came on air, you laugh because Don Bacon's uh, a character in in, uh, in book two, right? He's Captain Don Bacon's flying EC-130s. You know, moving on to book two, one of the things that was important to me was I loved being an electronic warfare, sir. I loved it. The electromagnetic spectrum to me has always been and will always be a domain. I wrote an article that was published in JED back in 2011 on it. It made the front page, and I I, uh, I appreciate Mr. Knowles greatly for putting that in there. But in that book, the electromagnetic spectrum, for those who don't know, becomes actually the supported domain. The entire war, or lack thereof, or the stopping of a war is based on aspects that take place in the electromagnetic spectrum. So if you're an EWO and you love EWO books and wish that Electromag Spectrum could get its day in, in the spotlight. <laughs> this is the book for you. I was talking to my colleague about this. As mentioned, I, I read the books. I'm, I'm getting ready to interview you. When you're trying to figure out what we do, quote unquote, we being the EMSO community, AOC, it, it really gets hard to explain it quickly and easily to people, for other people outside of our immediate community to grasp. And I think that your books actually, I mean, we need to start to, hey, you, you want to know what we do? You want to know why we do it? You know, read Balkan Reprisal, read uh, Jeff Fisher's books, because, I mean, you you take it, because it's military fiction, you you kind of take the esoteric edge off of it, and it just becomes very approachable. You read this, and you're like, okay, I understand how these pieces work together. I understand what you're doing from an EMSO perspective. I want to talk a little bit more about the EW stuff in Balkan Reprisal, but, you know, going back to the first book, one of the interesting plot points is this notion of how private military companies, private mercenary companies, the role that they play in global security. You know, we oftentimes look at uh, major global events and, and, you know, competitions, you know, Russia against uh, NATO or, or, or U.S. and China and so forth. But the role of these private military forces around the world propped up by numerous countries, sometimes competing countries, and being able to use those to accomplish certain objectives and and in this case you know certain training exercises that governments can't do was a really interesting look so talk about why you you wanted to focus on this notion of private military companies mercenary groups and the uh, the role that they play in both stabilizing and destabilizing global events around the world 
Sure. So you, you have a spectrum of, of PMCs or PMSCs. There's also, there's another acronym, private military and security companies, right? So we wouldn't be the military if we didn't have acronyms. And so when you start talking about there, there's good ones, there's bad ones. There's some that get morphed into this that aren't necessarily uh, good or bad. There's a security entity that's private that is trying to do something that's far, far removed from, let's say, military operations. But if, it, if we start talking about private or, and we start talking about profit, right, how, how far are some countries and some individuals and some folks who lack ethical value, how far are they willing to go to profiteer from being mercenaries and what's important to them? And if you take that to an extreme, do they value human life with before, over, over their profits? Uh, and, and that's kind of what Live Range looks at, right? One of the things that I really like about and I appreciate the military teaching me to be an electronic warfare officer was you always kind of had to think out of the box, right? That that electronic warfare was this very nebulous kind of thing and, and trying to explain it was hard and you had to become very good at doing that. But then you had to come up with mission planning ideas and, and different ways to actually employ your weapon systems. If you've practiced and trained to become a creative thinker, this is the basis for actually some of my books, right? And not only my books, I we, we talked a little bit offline. I crafted an article that was just published in the Kiev Post last week about a private military company, right? The potential for a mercenary air force for Kiev. And and I laid out exactly how that could happen because there are F-16s that are being used for adversary training in the United States. And Kiev could hire this the, these companies, uh, be them top aces or Draken. Lo and behold, this morning, uh, as we talked, Newsweek picked up my article and now it's being pushed in, you know, to, to 50, 60, 70,000 people. So it's clearly thinking out of the box. And that's just one example to, to touch on your, your PMC question. So hopefully I got to it. When you think about, you know, creative uh, story scenarios, I think one of the things that is interesting about your books is that, you know, at least knowing you and knowing your career, there is a lot of real experience trying to come through. So you know you're not just creating something that's not connected to reality. A lot of it kind of rang true in terms of like, okay, I understand, you know, why he's painting this picture this way. But, you know, you mentioned your, your, your article in Newsweek. And what's interesting is that when fiction is written well, it is very realistic in terms of actually, it's, it's just an idea. It's, it's an idea that, that may be able to be implemented without some of the consequences of bureaucracy and laws and stuff like that. So you can t- kind of look at it from a different perspective. And and if you can think of it, it can be done in a lot of cases. And these groups exist in part because it's hard for governments to actually execute these responsibilities formally because of not just laws, but also funding and other bureaucratic challenges. So at the same time, certain things need to be done, training exercises. And you take kind of take a look at some of that that gray area of things might start off really best intention, but start to shift a little bit when profits become a part of the equation or, or, or lives become a part of the equation. And it, it gets even more gray very quickly. That was kind of what happened to Dr. Nover. You know, it, it seemed everything was really clear, crystal clear when he got on location and it just started getting grayer and grayer and grayer until he couldn't get out of the kind of the mess that he stuck his nose in. So talk a little bit about that in terms of without giving the plot away, like how hard it is oftentimes as a warfighter, as a someone who has operational experience, who's in the global affairs to kind of keep aware of those lines of right and wrong and 
what do you need to do in to serve your country, to help others, and so forth, particularly in these complex times? So when you talk about military training, whether you're if you're a commander and you're ready to send guys into combat, you want to have the most realistic, right? The most realistic training that, that guys can have before they go to war. If that means you're in, a, in an EA6B and you're going to get uh, as many guys to, to rattle off an AGM-88 out <laughs> somewhere off the coast of San Diego at a barge so they can feel what it feels like and they can see the flash of the missile, feel the rattle of the airplane, time out the missile, all these types of things. That This is the most realistic training that you can get, right? The same thing with an EC-130. You want to go up to Nellis, you want to be able to turn on your jammers, you want to be able to you know, have all the effects that are associated with that and work through some of the challenges once your jammers come on, right? But the U.S. military, and, and I mean this sincerely, this isn't a joke, right? We we do have our ethical lines. We we draw our lines and we stop where we need to stop. Mercenary organizations, especially if they invest heavily in an individual, right? If they pay $500,000 for a guy to go downrange, um, they want to make sure that that guy's going to come back because he's an asset. So if you were going to remove ethical blinds, what kind of training would you want to give this guy so that you knew that he was going to get back? Is there a place where you could perform that training and remove ethical challenges or ethical issues? That's the basis for that, right? But but realistic training is the most important thing. And we've talked about this on our other shows, right? And that sandbox training for the, the Russians, because they don't have enough gas to run run maneuvers with all their ground forces or whatever, is it proved very, very devastating from the first few weeks of, of the war in Ukraine, right? They They just didn't have realistic training. It's something that was, you know, kind of going through my mind from our previous conversations as I was reading the book, because one of the assumptions that, you know, I was making going into the conflict, Russia invasion of Ukraine, was that they had a lot of real world experience because they were basically training by fighting on the front lines. And it at least appeared that way before everything started. But once everything did kick, you realize that sandbox training was actually more or less what they were doing. It wasn't real world experience training you know, it's been now almost a year since the evasion started, you know, now there is real world training, you know, are we seeing a different uh, understanding of training? What has changed over the last year? And then relate that to this notion of how do you accomplish live training before the fighting starts? Arguably from from what we're seeing here in Europe right now is Russia has gotten better. Uh, it's much harder for Ukraine to gain ground Right now, the fighting is over in the east, over in the Donbass, in that area. And, you know, Russia's touting every single victory that they get, even if the town's less than 10,000 people, they, you know, they captured it and it's a huge deal. And it's not, you know, but it plays well in the, in the media, right? They're like, we've captured town X or location X. And if you equate location X to be the size of Chicago, it's a big deal. If you equate it to be the size of, uh, Tombstone, Arizona, probably not a big deal, right? So, Russian media is, uh, is still churning out the propaganda, and that's you know that that is what it is. With respect to training for live range, right? There's many conflicts that are going on in the world that I would argue that many Americans have just have no idea, right? <laughs> they just they, they and 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 it's not their own fault. I think U.S. media cycles really get sucked up into into national news, and they really really want to focus on national news. Uh, they are for profit entities, and if they want to report on some place in the middle of Africa that nobody knows or knows how to point to on a map. It, it's far less interesting than, you know, a little girl in Hebron, Indiana got hit by a car and, you know, and the guy drove away. That's, that's a bigger article, right? So, okay. Or a bigger news story. So 
I mean, I don't blame people. It, they have to fight. If you're an American, you almost have to fight to get international news sometimes, unless it's breaking news. And these places that are fighting, a lot of them don't abide by the Geneva Convention, right? We, we see war atrocities that are going on in Ukraine every now and then in, in Russia, and, and it, it, it's horrifying. If you really want to be horrified, do, you know, try and dive into the dark, dark web sometime and see what's going on in, in some of these places in sub-Saharan Africa or or other locations. It's, uh, you know, Abu Sayyaf and his terrorist gang that were running around in the Asian islands. Um, they, they, these are ruthless, ruthless people. And you see that in a lot of the media coverage in the book about the mining company that is also a private military company. It's not just paying for certain operations or certain training. Actually, there's a whole town that's almost prospering from this. And, and, and if you're on one side looking in, it's a very positive story. It's, it's almost frightening to kind of dive into that and ask questions, which Dr. Nover starts to ask questions because like, wait a second, if, if, if this is going on, why is this not going on? And once you start asking questions, you do go into this darkness and you realize that it's, it's not what you think. And, and a lot of people who are involved in it, they only see their slice and they're not seeing the whole big picture. And when you step back and look at the big picture, you're like, oh crap, like this is a mess. So it's, it's really kind of an interesting look at how you really have to ask questions and keep an open mind because if you don't ask questions and you don't know what's going on, you can't get the right solution. I learned a very valuable lesson when I was a kid and, I, and it's from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? And, and I, I, you kind of laugh about Charlie Bucket brings home a, a big candy bar, right? And his mom goes, where did you get that? And Grandpa Joe goes, well, it doesn't matter where he got it, but he got it, right? So, so people in poverty, they don't necessarily care where the money comes from if it helps get them out of poverty. So, you know, even if you are a company that is doing horribly unethical things, if you are helping a local village and the village is, is surviving, those people don't, don't necessarily care where, what you're doing, where the money's coming from, nor do they want anyone asking about it, right? So they're like, hey, just, just stop asking about that. We, we just don't want you to, to know, right? Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. Uh, BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Lab specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? 
In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products that benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems, Electronic Systems, product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. So going on to the second book, there are carryover characters. Obviously, Curtin Over is the, the main character, and there's a few carryover characters, you know, Smitty, uh, Allison, and so forth. But you can really almost, you can pick up the second book and read that before the first book and still get plenty of, you, you, you don't lose anything uh, per se, uh, although I do encourage both. But Balkan Reprisal, it's not about the, the private military company as much as it is about countries and bureaucracies and organizations, uh, embassy, State Department, DOD, NATO, and and the interplay on, on that level and the real military operational experience, some great stories that you could just see, like uh, like knowing you, like, oh, this is this is Colonel Fisher's experience retold in, in, in fiction. So talk a little bit about, you know, this, what you want to accomplish in Balkan reprisal that you couldn't, weren't able to, or decided not to do in Live Range, the first book, because it does take a different approach or different storyline to it. So yeah, so Live Range was was more of, of a personal struggle of, of who Kurt was and, and how I want my kid to know that I was I was ethical. I, I, I did fight in combat, but I, I was ethical and I realized where the line was. My second book is about, okay, this is a conglomeration of my life, right? So I have electronic warfare, I have special ops, and then I also have my diplomatic hat where I was a defense attache, right? And, and I was a senior defense attache. I lived in Vienna. I worked in Vienna. I, I've seen espionage up, up close and personal, right? I don't want to give away too much, but there's a there's a character in my book that that's a honeypot, right? She truly does exist. Right? She, I know I know her from my time, and she's not doing anything illegal. It's it's legal in in Vienna, and that blows some people's minds. But but it is what it is. And no, I did not fall for the honeypot. I just know who she is. So let's 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 clarify that for the readers, right? But. Uh, but this was a conglomeration. And, and you talk about the diplomatic and, and political stuff. To me, that was always really some of the most fascinating parts of my work, right? Sitting in a video conference with the White House on some issue that was going on and and listening to how diplomats were making decisions. And I'm not talking good or bad decisions. This isn't a this isn't being critical of them, but it was something that the public never got to see, right? Like, like 
How did that come about? And what was the discussion? And, and if I could peek under the tent or if I could show people what it was like inside diplomatic and political discussions, um, what does that truly look like? Why are decisions being made? And when we find out publicly, it doesn't seem to make sense. Well, you don't have the whole story, right? There's a, there's a whole backstory there that you just don't have. And, you know, a lot of times you hear from the outside, you know, oh, well, you know, State Department is fighting against DOD or, other, you know, the agencies are, are not seeing eye to eye. That has some truth, but it's, it's really not the, the major truth that's going on. You know, you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but there's a reason for it. And it was great to see how those processes played out in some, both in terms of like the long lead decisions that took months to, to come to, but also the quick decisions that needed to be made and how those agencies came together to make those decisions and kind of give the go on certain operations or so forth. It did give you an inside look that was very, not just realistic, but you knew that it was tied to someone's, yours experience, uh, direct experience of how things worked inside. Sure. I'd be foolish not to point out that there's a vast corporate culture difference between State Department and DOD. Uh, that 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 shouldn't surprise anybody. We are we are just different people, right? But we all want what's best for the United States. And if you if you try and remember that, even if you're a DoD guy working at an embassy, everyone gets along. I, I'm very proud to say that in in Balkan reprisal, the forward for that one was written by my ambassador in Kosovo. So you know, I I don't I don't poo poo on State Department. I think State Department plays a very valuable role in our government, and I also think that. Yeah, I, I do have highlights in there where State Department and DOD do butt heads, but they're approaching things through different lenses, and and that's okay, right? Uh, trying to find the, the best way forward is the mo- most important aspect. So yeah, Greg Delaway, my, my old ambassador, still a, a good friend of mine. Um, we have very different political views. We have very different views on use of hard power, but uh, I call him a friend, and, um, and, and he's a really, really good guy. And he's way smarter than I am. He graduated from Harvard, so... But having that process, the bureaucratic process in place where those difference of opinions and perspectives can be aired and worked through and taken into account to come up with a solution, I think, is very important. And so that, and that kind of comes out where not everyone does see eye to eye in this book. It's not monolithic in that in that regard. So it, it was it was an interesting inside look. I do want to touch on the EW stuff real quickly. But before I do that, NATO plays a role, obviously, in Balkan reprisal. And I wanted to get your Thoughts on, you know, obviously this was written before the current conflict in uh, invasion of Russia into Ukraine. So, you know, how NATO's responded in real world with the invasion of Ukraine and how NATO responds in Balkan reprisal. Could you talk a little bit about that dynamic of NATO as an entity, how it goes about its mission? What do you think is different today than maybe what you think? thought when you wrote the book? Sure. I was the executive officer for NATO Special Operations as my last assignment. And uh, and my boss was working directly for the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe, you know, General Todd Walters, who is a great guy. Uh, my boss, Vice Admiral Kilrain, a uh, great guy. But I got to see NATO at, at, at a very high level. It's full of really, really good people that want to do great things. I remember I was on the military side of NATO, not necessarily dip, the diplomatic side. So I wasn't up in Brussels. I was down in Mons. And NATO is a coalition of the willing. And uh, when the coalition speaks, it speaks loudly. I think what military people would often argue is though it doesn't speak enough, right? So uh, it's the lowest common denominator. It's a consensus-based organization. So, you know, if, if everyone's not in line and everyone's not supporting, then NATO doesn't 
respond, right? You've got back-channel diplomacy going on, trying to convince nations to do certain things, and you, you know, and and it's a patchwork of volunteerism, right? So as my time in, in Kosovo, the K4 brigades and assignments were negotiated every year in Brussels. Who's gonna send this many people for this part? Which nation's gonna send this? And they would all volunteer, right? This is an all-volunteer commitment effort to include the United States part, right? And and that happens every year. And, you know, thank God there, there's enough uh, people to fill the, the missions. Uh, Kosovo and others might argue that there's there's not enough and that's dwindled down and the numbers are, are too little right now. That's all a political argument. The military doesn't have a say in that, right? So if it wasn't a great organization, Russia and Putin wouldn't have been made one of their largest strategic efforts to be to, to, to drive fissures and wedges between NATO and break it apart. If he didn't think NATO was important, he would that, that wouldn't have been one of his primary targets, right? So, so it's an important organization. I, if Putin doesn't like it, it's good. In the book, one of the more enjoyable sections was, you know, the the, the operation that you wrote about, uh, you wrote about with the EC-130H Compass Call and the Commando Solo. For fear of giving too much away, I'll let you kind of leave an open-ended question. Tell us about that as much, but very interesting character because the captain was, of course, Captain Bacon, kind of obviously drawn off of uh, Congressman Don Bacon and even the same call sign. So, uh, so you know, it kind of lets you sit back and kind of think about real people in that position, even though it's a made-up story. So could you talk a little bit about the EW operation in there? And I'll leave that open-ended because I don't want to give too much away, but I'll leave, leave that to you. Sure. So to go into the, to the scenario of the operation, right, the senior leaders, I won't say which, uh, have levied a requirement onto the planners to say that there can be no kinetic, there can be no hard, hard power, right? There can, And a very dear friend of mine, Lieutenant Colonel Monk Bayless, uh, who is one of the smartest intelligence officers I've ever met in my life, unfortunately passed away uh, of a heart attack uh, two years ago. He's the guy who builds the plan, right? And uh, and comes up with the plan. And what was funny is, is it's always hard to teach people who who've engaged in hard power all their life, right? <laughs> it's hard to tell a soft guy who's kicked down doors and killed people that there are a soft power. And one of my favorite quotes that, that Monk puts in there, and I believe it's from Sun Tzu is, you know, a warrior never truly understands soft power until a mosquito lands on his testicles. And it's at that point that you understand that, that soft power does exist, right? It, it, you don't have to kill everything. So the way in which that can happen is through the electronic spectrum, right? So you've, so Monk creates, with, without mentioning, he creates a scenario where the electromagnetic spectrum becomes the supported domain and everything else is out there trying to support that special operations act, activities. And, and I'll stop right there so, so I don't spoil it. But, and it's fascinating because I ran the book by a, a bunch of editors and a bunch of uh, smart people. And they're like, you know, this is plausible. Like this really could work. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, did DOD really approve this book? <laughs> I'm like, yes, DOD, DOD did it. It is approved. It did go through DOD security review. All of my writing goes through them. And uh, yeah, so it was approved and and it's it's cool, right? It, it's really cool. Now, F-16 pilots and F-15 pilots are like, ah, I just want to drop bombs. So, okay, you, you can do that. And that's a good point. You know, they, they, these books do go through review. So, you know, a lot of your military fiction out there doesn't because it doesn't need to. But this is so close to fact in a lot of ways that, you know, it does have to go through a review. So I think that that speaks highly of, you know, the, the content and the carefulness of you as an author to kind of get that story out there in a near factual way, but also, you know, having uh, fun with the, you know, writing the story. So you have two books out now. Dr. Curtinover is in both. He continues. You have a, another one coming out soon, Afghan Ghosts. 
and then I think one or two others kind of in the hopper in the future. So talk a little bit about where you see this series going and what, you know, readers and listeners can expect. So yeah, so Afghan ghosts, uh, Kurt, Kurt and the gang decided to take a vacation into Afghanistan. Uh, I don't want to spoil too much of the plot, but of course, a vacation in Afghanistan, it's always, <laughs> always ends well. Yeah, exactly. Some more things progress into, into Kurt and Allison's uh, life. And because of that, Kurt, Kurt has to go. There's something longing calling him, him back to Afghanistan, and, and Allison's not too happy about that. And then after that one, uh, the, the fourth book, which is in heavy edit right now, is called Russian Puppeteer. And in this one, Kurt is hired by a, a, a company to work in a nefarious way for the greater good of the United States as Russia attempts to put the United States at the end of a, of a puppet string and basically make the United States dance the way Russia or Moscow wants the United States to react to certain international aspects. Uh, Kurt is, um, Kurt's front and center in, in basically cutting those strings. And I think it's, you know, important to kind of wrap it back up to, you know, the first book, you know, when, when you talk about warfighters, uh, retired warfighters who are battling PTSD, you know, it, it is a process. It doesn't have an end point. And you can kind of see this through the life of Kurt Nover you know, in, in, in these books. Yeah, the, the, the storyline, the plot line is creative and interesting, but there is a process that he goes through. And just when you think that there is, you know, positive progress and he's reaching a point, something else can happen and, you know, take you back a few steps. And it's, it's that continual process. So um, I think it's a, it's a really good look into the psychology of a warfighter, some, what they might struggle with and, and understand that process. Yeah. I, it's funny, my, you know, people who read it uh, that, that are close to me that have the ability to reach out to me, they, it's funny. I get some that say, yep, I, I get it. I get some that go uh, and forgive my language. They're like, God damn it, Curtin over you, you have Alice and you have everything. What? You're throwing it away. <laughs> Stop. And then, and then I have others who just really can't grasp PTSD. And they're just like, I just, I don't understand that. I don't, and, and, and all are valid, right? Cause it's, it's how people look through, look at the book through their own lens. The book is just, it, it's, um, it's trying to explain it in a certain way. And, and to a degree, it's trying to normalize the people who have PTSD, normalize them in society. They're, they're the stigmatisms. I, I would love to, to see them go away. People who have PTSD struggle every day, but they're still people. And 90% of the time, they're going to be on, on, on the good side of, of life. But unfortunately, when they're on the bad side, it, it, it can get pretty bad. Last question, you know, bringing it back into, you know, current events a little bit. With your writing, you know, you're dealing with real world scenarios. From the U.S. perspective, obviously, we're engaged through NATO and in Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's the China competition and so forth. What are some of your closing thoughts in terms of lessons that we need to learn as a country, U.S. Uh, military, from your writing as you were able to dig into scenarios and, and complexities? What are some of the things that we can learn in the real world in terms of how to approach some of these complex global security challenges? My first one would be that um, the United States is a very powerful country, but it's not the only country. And we sometimes fail to realize that alliances are truly important and how our allies see or perceive things is at least important to try and understand. We don't have to agree, but we have to understand why, for example, right now, uh, Chancellor Schultz in Germany is waffling very hard on sending you know, heavy tanks and heavy armor into Ukraine. We might be mad about that and we have a right to be upset about that. But we, if we truly want to be upset, we should probably try and understand why he's doing that, right? <laughs> and um, because he's under a lot of pressure. 
And understanding that is important. Studying, you know, if wars are going to be fought in Europe, it's really important to understand Europe. And then the last thing is the interagency, you know, Ambassador Delouis uh, said it really nice when he put a PS in, in, in his forward. And he said, look, he goes, I realize the movies and the books always say that we don't get along. The truth is we get along far more than we don't get along. And, uh, and I'm really you know, appreciative of, it, of his DOD friends. Hollywood makes for good movies, right? So, so that this friction that exists between, you know, the general and the, the undersecretary and they're yelling and, and, or, you know, all the guys stand, sitting around the, uh, the executive briefing room for the National Security Council and, you know, they're, they're fighting. It, it's not really like that. It, they all want what's best. There is political posturing. Don't get me wrong. They all, they all want their time in the sun with the president. But, but at the end of the day, it's about trying to do what's best. Thank you for taking time. And and again, for our listeners, the, the two books are Live Range and then Balkan Reprisal. Colonel Fisher, it's, it's great to have you on the show. Encourage everyone to pick up a book and hopefully maybe we'll see this in a movie sometime. That would be uh, a, a nice cap to the experience. But uh, really appreciate you taking time to join us. And I'm sure we'll have you back on again in the near future to, to keep us up to speed on what you're hearing around, you know, particularly in the region of Eastern Europe and uh, Russia invasion of Ukraine. So thank you for joining me here. I'm from the Crow's Nest. Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Ken. I appreciate you having me. Take care. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel and author Jeffrey Fisher. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me and the show on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.